Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush, and this is the New Statesman's twice-weekly politics podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the rise of social conservatism in UK politics, and we're delighted to be joined by special guest Henry Hill, Deputy Editor of Conservative Home. Thanks so much for joining us, Henry. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So we thought we'd do an episode on this and its sort of interaction with the culture wars as well, because, Rachel, you were recently reporting on concerns among Tory moderate MPs about a takeover of what they labelled the religious right or the reactionary right. And you found a fear among some centrists that if moderates lose their seats to Labour and the Lib Dems in the next election, uh, then the party could be dragged rightwards. So could you explain a little bit about what people's concerns were. Yeah, so it's some within the One Nation group of MPs who have put themselves in the sort of centre of British politics who felt that those with some of the largest majorities were actually those who have quite socially conservative views. A lot of these MPs would kind of coalesce around Sir John Hayes, who's kind of chair of the Common Sense group of Conservatives. Mm-hmm. He's got the safest Tory seat, right? I think he has the right. safest <laughs> in Holland and the Deep Inns, the safest Tory seat in the country. And that they would their influence would then be outsized within the parliamentary party and that would put the Conservative Party in a more socially conservative place. But I think it's an interesting issue to talk about in that British politics generally is heading in that direction. I think the campaign of Kate Forbes, the one of the candidates for SNP leader, there was a 52-48 split in the vote, that kind of dreadful dynamic. It's always 52-48, It's like one of those Doctor Who recurring motifs, like yeah. Stephen <laughs> Moore. Eventually it's all going to make sense. But. but she was quite open about the fact that she is a person of faith and would not have voted for same-sex marriage, and it's just an interesting dynamic that emerges time again in British politics that perhaps should be talking about a bit more. Yeah, And how much influence is there among those sort of social conservatives that Rachel's just spoken about that. And we know about John Hayes and his relationship with Suella Braverman, for example. John Hayes is a, a, a name that people might remember from the first time Suella Braverman was Home Secretary when she resigned, was sacked, depending on whose version of events you want to believe, for forwarding a sensitive Home Office document to John Hayes, who's a backbencher, but who clearly has a lot of influence on that particular wing of the party. So that's why his name has come up. And he also, she also sent it to his wife because his wife is his secretary, which is keeping it all in the family. Family values conservatism. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the Parliament would destroy fewer marriages if MPs were still allowed to employ their spouses. That's all I'll say. I think with the social conservatives, they're not one homogenous bloc. I think sometimes, with the greatest respect to the Tory centrists, it does rather flatter 
to themselves to conceive of this sort of one big group of, n- of nutters. Um, <laughs> but you've got the old-fashioned faith flag and family cornerstone group of mostly older, mostly male conservative MPs who came up in the 80s and they represent one particular brand of social conservatism. But you also have a much younger generation of conservative MPs, most prominently, I think, Miriam Cates, also people like Danny Kruger. And I guess you could call them social conservative, but they're not the same flavour, if you like. They're not coming from quite the same place. Like Miriam Cates' key priority is why should the childcare system, for example, constantly incentivise people to go, women particularly, but mm. parents in general, why should it be geared around getting them into work? Why, why wouldn't it be more conservative to, if you have this pot of money available, make it a possibility to support stay-at-home parents? Now, you might describe that as social conservatism, and one of the impacts of such a policy would probably be reducing female workforce participation rates, which might look like a social conservative outcome, but I wouldn't comfortably lump Miriam Cates and Danny Kruger in the same camp as Sir Edward Lee. I think that's you're very far away from them, so they look close together. Okay, and Rachel, I see you've got a speech by Miriam Cates printed out there. What do you make of her brand of conservatism? Because it's not just childcare that she's spoken about, is it? She has also written against buffer zones around abortion clinics, for example. Yes, and her and Danny Kruger have set up this think tank called the New Social Covenant Unit, whose main priority seems to be, at the moment, sex ed, sex and relationship advice, education in schools. They did this big report where they said it's really terrifying. Kids are being taught all kinds of graphic porn-induced things that you parents don't want them to know about. If you actually look at what the report found, their claims were pretty hyperbolic. But they've started this big debate. They've been talked about it in Parliament. They've written lots of op-eds for it for various papers. This idea that there's something very scary in what children are being taught in schools that their parents don't have control over. Now, the the other side of it is generally what I think schools are trying to teach is acceptance of different family structures, different sexualities. If you have children in the class who have two fathers, two mothers, or who are questioning their sexuality or gender themselves, it's responsible as a school to promote acceptance and tolerance. And I feel like we had a lot of these debates in the 80s and 90s. But the This particular movement of social conservatives, or not as Henry said, this particular movement of this, I guess they're a culture war faction. They are very much arguing that there is this nefarious force in our schools and in other parts of our establishment that is harmful to, uh, harmful to ideas of the family and of values and morality. And they're very keen to look into that whether they think that in a sort of cynical way they think it's a vote winner or they genuinely are concerned i think is another matter okay because this outrage about sex ed that you laid out very well there and also the anti-abortion stuff as well some of it feels quite imported from america very much imported from america yeah i think one thing that's important to note is that whether or not you agree with social conservatives and i don't think there's going to be an awful lot of support for them in this room but there is a much larger swell of public opinion that holds some of these views than I think the British politics has actually represented. If you imagine, I have this phrase called the Overton shadow, right? I don't know if it exists on the left, but it definitely exists on the right. If you imagine a relatively even spread of opinion on the right, you then have a lot of right-wing people clustering somewhere near the centre, and then you've got people who just don't care, and they're all the way out on the far edge. 
And you have all of the people in the middle who are unrepresented. So famously, the top left of the political compass, the Jeremy Driver's famous hang the pedos from the NHS block, (laughs) unrepresented. But on abortion, for example, we do have a relatively strong political consensus on where the abortion limit should be. But it is being challenged from both directions. You've got people saying that the limits should be increased and that the prosecutions for late term attempted abortions should not be prosecuted. And on the other hand, you have people saying that the abortion limit should maybe be reduced. But the polling is definitely not entirely set. And I think it's important in a democracy that we actually have those battles rather than simply trying to exile that debate from public life. Yes, and we are having Ben Walker, our polling expert, on the second half to talk us through some of those views. Rachel, sorry, you were going to come in. No, I was just going to say, I think some of it, some of the trend perhaps towards more social conservative views kind of mirrors what's been happening in the economy. It's turn away from globalisation, turn away from cities towards towns. So that's changing how the parties are in generally. And I think where there might have been a more contested debate, I think probably people within the Liberal Democrats and in the Labour Party are not, I think the Labour would probably describe itself as social conservatives now at its core. And you've seen them roll back on some of their trans policy. I think there's a centre ground is being re-established, really. And also, based on the economy, if you think about projecting forward 10, 20 years into the future, as all of the problems on but the burdens on the British state get bigger. We have an ageing population. The NHS needs more and more money. Actually, I think it may be functionally impossible to have a low tax politics in 10 or 20 years time, realistically, because the demands are so great and resistance to all the things that would produce growth are also so great. And so if you're the Conservative Party, what are you going to, what's going to be your dividing line? The dividing line will be who gets the pie. And that's when things like how do we design childcare, how do we design the benefit system, what values do we imprint into how the state distributes money become much more important. And I think that's where Kruger and Cates are and where maybe George Osborne wasn't. That's quite interesting because I was going to bring Lee Anderson into this discussion as well. A new statesman, new statesman favourite, Lee Anderson. Because although you might not lump him in with the MPs that we've been talking about so far, there is a con- there is that sort of conservatism that you were just describing, Henry. It's that that kind of streak in the way that he talks about food banks and welfare, who is the deserving and who is the undeserving, and what is driving people to these places. And he has his own particular quite controversial views on that. But that again, I can feel the Conservative Party could coalesce around that kind of opinion. Yeah, and not with, notwithstanding the specifics of Lee Anderson's views, which are very much Lee Anderson's views, <laughs> that's ultimately what another decade or two of low to zero growth would actually mean. The entirety of politics would shift towards being around who gets the pie rather than growing it. And that isn't, I think, necessarily, compared to what we've been used to over the past few decades, no. an uglier and more divisive form of politics. But it is what you have if you don't have growth to keep distributing to people and you have to have really vicious turf wars over priorities. I find that the childcare debate within the Tory party really interesting because Liz Truss briefly, when she was Prime Minister, seemed to understand that growth is really low, partly because we've got a very tight labour market and there are lots of people who would like to be working who can't. And one of the reasons for that is because they're caring for children or caring for elderly relatives as well, or family members. Um, And that if you want to boost the economy, you could do that by providing the infrastructure to get those people back Mm -hmm. into work. And so that was a conservative growth policy, similar, I guess, to what you could imagine George Osborne coming up with, although they didn't talk about childcare in that way, but this idea that what we want is everyone working, high productivity, lots of growth, then you can use the taxes to to fund whatever. To now be having this, the backlash that we've seen, not just from Miriam Kate, George Eustace as well was talking about how we should be valuing stay-at-home mothers and specifically did talk about stay-at-home mothers, not stay-at-home parents. Fathers seem to just fall out of these conversations. But they, it's a very different set of 
priorities where growth isn't the key consideration and maybe that's the reasons for that and certainly we've talked about the anti-growth movement on the left that says hang on like just growth isn't necessarily the way forward but you are having some quite uncomfortable conversations about who is going to do this work that we don't value and fund properly at the moment i remember danny kruger a couple of years ago did a report for a left-wing think tank actually demos on social care and fixing the social care system and his whole thing was people particularly women should be caring for their elderly parents rather than expecting the state to do it and we need to enable empower women to do that role rather than trying to find a funding solution so it's not just childcare; it's a completely different world view about how the state should function well yes i was going to mention that as well i've spoken to people in government who have suggested that as the solution to social care which is incentivizing families to look after their loved ones rather than this whole sort of structure of social care that's obviously very underfunded but of course that requires money as well to provide those incentives and i think the next step after that is going to be and it hasn't really broken up in the debate yet but it's circulating in the think tanks is actually it's not just childcare; it's children because the, the Tory debate over the two-child limit, for example, the basis mm. for the two-child limit, apart from the rather ugly ones in, set out in the welfare trade, was that it wasn't right that families on a normal income had to make really hard economic decisions about how many children they had, but that people on welfare didn't were free from that constraint as they saw it. Now, the sort of Osborneite solution was, right, we're going to put a cap on it. Mm. But amongst many of this sort of new sort of Tory, they actually think children are a social good. And actually, this tax system should reflect that and it should be cost neutral for working families and ordinary families to have children. Now, that's a huge reorganisation of the state. But I think that in a decade's time, that's going to be a live debate within the Conservative Party, especially if you recognise that we need another generation and we need more workers and we need all of that. But you also don't want high immigration. That's a debate you have to have. And the right has ducked it for too long, I think. Right. Otherwise, he's going to pay for our pensions. Nobody. We're not going to get any. <laughs> <laughs> Work till one When we're talking about this potential future of the Conservative Party, is there a risk that they are heading into their sort of Corbyn in opposition era? That's a very good question. I was thinking about an example today. There's kind of a report out by uh, Colin Bloom, who I think is the, on basically the intersection between religion and the state and I was looking at one of the recommendations and many of them are to address extremism in Mm. schools and what have you. One of the recommendations was to fund more chaplains in schools, in universities, in prisons and I thought would anybody in the Labour Party actually contest that at the moment? Mm. I just wonder if there is a a different centre ground now altogether because they're all competing for the same vote so I don't know it remains to be seen. I think it also depends who's left after the next election, how close it is and what how the kind of centre ground eventually rests after the next election, how voters see it. I think also it depends whether or not, or rather, if you think it's inevitable, how long it takes the Tories to do the actual policy legwork. Because currently, the pro- I don't really like the phrase culture war because I think there's a certain sort of, I am advocating for positive social change, you are waging a culture war, <laughs> double standard about it. But I think that currently, culture war approach to the Tories has been incredibly counterproductive because they just say really loud, not particularly helpful things, and then they do nothing. Mm. And then the problem's as they see it, continue and they get no credit. But everyone's more aware of the problems than before. So the, so currently the Tories like talk about what irritates them, but they haven't got any structural solutions. And I, I think the difference is that would separate this from maybe being a kind of Corbynite wilderness period versus a genuine transformation of the Conservative Party. If somebody comes along and they're not some loudmouth who's just irritating people, but they're saying, look, I have a 
proper I've thought about how we're going to structure the welfare system I've thought about how we're going to structure the NHS and taxes and all the rest of it and it's that will mark the serious shift and if they don't do that work then they can say all the kind of social conservative stuff they like and it won't get them anywhere that's that brings us on to what I really wanted to ask you all which is if they are going to go in this direction who would be the potential leaders or even just thought leaders who they would coalesce around are there people coming up through the party is Miriam Cates an example of that for example I think you might see Kemi Badenoch lean in that direction. And I know she isn't one of the ones that we've talked about and she definitely doesn't come from the more religious, social conservative part of it. But she has made anti-wokery her thing, her brand. And obviously as a MP of Nigerian descent, she can do that in a way that it's been very effective for her. And she has a sort of straight talking, not pro positive discrimination, critical race theory gone mad, all of that thing. And that in the summer leadership contest seemed to serve her very well. So I think she is one to watch because I think she could be somebody who could channel that wing of it, even if it's not really her position and her views. And she's also quite, from what I've heard, people are quite impressed with her on a policy side of it well. So she has both. Mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to say that it's really interesting that we are talking about the Tories in these terms, because David Cameron did so much work to try and move the party away from all of that. I know people who say that David Cameron's main legacy, the thing that he will be remembered for, other than the Brexit referendum, is the fact that he was the Prime Minister who introduced same-sex marriage and yes Labour paved the groundwork for that with civil partnerships but that was a Conservative Prime Minister who did that he was all about rebranding the Tories we don't care about any of the social stuff what we care about is growing the economy setting businesses free giving you more of your own money to spend being fiscally responsible that was the type of Conservative and what you do in the bedroom is basically up to you and the culture war style conservatives have really gone the other way on that and it's going to be interesting to see how that battle plays out it also i think it also depends that if there is a labor victory it depends how their victory is interpreted if if, mm. if for example like bridget phillipson has a massive childcare plan that is universal talks about freedom of women talks about talks about the issue in a slightly different way does that impact who becomes a candidate for Conservative Party leader? Leader, not really, because that, that is, is like any choosing a leader after an election. It'll be absolutely awful. It's carnage. Sadly, I think Conholm would fire me, but I'd dearly like to. He might contrive to catch COVID or something. But no, I, th- I think the next joint leadership election is really going to be about, if it is moving in this direction at all, it will be a kind of in a John the Baptist-y way rather mm. than in a, you know, actual Jesus because it's a lot of policy work <laughs> that hasn't been done but also there's a it's a really vicious internal battle that has to be won not really so much against the Cameroons I think the big problem the Cameroons have is that their project just didn't really deliver from mm. the Conservatives right like at high watermark was 2015 when they barely squeaked 16 seats the Labour seats the Tories won in London are now like 10,000 votes or more underwater. So when mm. the Cameroons go, oh, we need to return to the days of David Cameron, most Conservative activists, including me, are just like, not really, this. <laughs> not really particularly compelling. But the other problem is with the Thatcherites, because as we saw with Liz Truss, this slightly zombie-ish libertarian Toryism is still very strong mm. amongst Conservative activists and MPs. I don't think it's a particularly realistic treatment of our economic situation, and you could tell because Liz Truss ran as the pro-growth candidate whilst denouncing housing targets as Stalinist and not wanting to increase immigration. So you can see the, it was more meme than reality. But actually, mentally and spiritually, 
consigning Our Lady of Iron to the past tense in the Conservative Party is going to be a huge spiritual like trauma and they haven't gone through it yet so it'll be 10 years I think before we actually this becomes if it becomes this becomes the conservatism that is being offered to the nation and they're all going to need a lot of therapy after the break we'll look into how liberal or conservative public opinion really is on these kind of issues if you're subscribed to the New Statesman you can get all our episodes ad free on the New Statesman app you can get it on both iOS and Android just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store we'll be back in a couple of minutes If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So I'm really pleased to have Ben Walker, our polling expert, joining us for the second half. Could you just give us a sort of broad picture? How liberal is the general public and what direction is opinion moving in, do you think, from the polling that you've been looking at? So when you introduced this, this podcast, you said, you, I misheard you. I thought you were talking about the growth in social conservatism. And I was thinking, I don't think it has grown. It may have grown amongst the parliamentary conservative party, but amongst the public, it hasn't really. I think we deluded ourselves a little bit in in thinking that votes for the Labour Party, for the Greens, the Liberal Democrats are our votes from liberal voters, when in reality, public opinion is not out and out liberal, like 100% of the Labour vote is not 100% liberal voters. Okay, it's always worth bearing that in mind. Now, the British Social Attitude Survey, they do this, they do these things every year, and they try and work out what composition of both the electorate and the population believe in XYZ, because there's a big difference. Who turns out at the ballot box is not necessarily reflective of who actually lives in this country. Okay, when we think of young people, we often tend to think they're 60% Labour supporters, a healthy chunk vote green, a semi-healthy, not healthy anymore, chunk go Liberal Democrat. But in reality, that's not reflective of young people. The types of young people who come out at the ballot box are actually disproportionately university educated, disproportionately logged onto politics. And if you were to maximise youth turnout, you would get a completely different end product than what you think, right? Bearing this in mind, 18 to 34-year-olds, 33% consider themselves liberal or I hold political positions that we would call socially liberal. 23% would say socially authoritarian. 43% neither. That's not exactly damning. To be honest, that is the most liberal subset. You have the over 55-year-olds, 46% have authoritarian values, 15% liberal. Across Britain as a whole, more Britons have authoritarian values than liberal. 39% authoritarian, 21% liberal. 40% neither. If you want to talk about the centre ground, the issues 
might have changed. We don't talk about immigration as much as we used to compared to 2010 and 15. 15 years ago, when I was starting to get into interested in politics, questions of the death penalty, bringing it back, most Britons, 55 to 60% would say, yes, let's bring it back. Now it's closer to 45 to 50. On individual issues, we have ch- shifted. Attitudes to immigration have softened, but the medium Britain still wants tighter controls, more restrictions, all the rest of it than not. We ju- we ju- we've just moved on the issues. When it comes to the outlook, though, we may have moved a little bit towards, toward, towards liberalism, but honestly, it's not by much. You just have to appreciate, we, we logged on talking heads, we in Parliament or whatever, we're not exactly representative of the final product out there in the rest of the country. They are a lot less motivated by issues such as trans rights as we perhaps are. Great. Okay. thanks so much, Ben. That was really comprehensive. I do want to ask you more about what the individual polling shows, but let's just have a quick chat about what you've told us, because it seems to bear out what you were saying, Henry, about that. I think you called it the Overton shadow. Yeah. uh, So, yeah, that's my, as yet, slightly hazy conception, which is basically the gap between the edge of the Overton window where all the respectable conservative commentators cluster (laughs) and the far end where all the nutters live. But there are lots of people in the middle. Even if 45% of British people back the death penalty, that means that in theory, there are an awful lot of people out there whose views are basically Rishi Sunak plus hanging, you know? (laughs) 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 That's their slogan. Yeah, fiscal fiscal conservatism, nice, moderate, but also hang the crims. But that's a politician. That's a type of politician that currently doesn't exist. And that means that group is underserved. And as most of the time, that results in fairly consistently pol- policy that's fairly consistently more liberal than general public attitudes would suggest. But I think the problem is, if you get to a point where so much weight of opinion builds up in that neglected space, that's when you start getting it spilling over into something like a Trump. Why did so many religious mm-hmm. conservatives, such as Phyllis Schlafly, deeply conviction Catholic, why did she vote for somebody like Donald Trump? Because there was so much that she believed in that had not been represented for ages, that when this person on the far end, cropped up and started saying it. It's like, fine, I'm going to vote for them. So I think that's the danger. If you, So hopefully, one of the advantages if the Conservatives do start populating that space in a slightly more intelligent way is that we will be less exposed to, say, accidentally ending up with someone like Lee Anderson in a position <laughs> of leadership. I was going to ask, Ben, OK, so we're not as liberal as we think we are when asked these questions, but... How important are these issues to voters compared to things like the NHS, the economy, the cost of living crisis? And is it a case that you've got lots of people who are furious about these things all the time and will vote for politicians who represent their views in these areas no matter what? Or have you got people going, I wish there were a few more politicians who spoke for me on these issues, as as Henry said, but what I'm really worried about is I can't get a GP appointment or my mortgage has just gone up by this amount and I can't afford petrol or food at the moment. Like, how does it rank in terms of voter priority? You pretty much answered it yourself, though, with the latter point, is that most people, if you were to ask people opinions on immigration, people would get vexed. People would start to have opinions. People would start to focus on it. And you may have noticed, I don't know if keep keeping an eye on the opinion polls, we yeah. have seen immigration as an issue rise up the agenda just a little bit. Relative to 10 years ago, nowhere near. But compared to the years of when UKIP were about, nowhere near. But when you talk about it, it does rise up. The priority right now, of course, yes, is inflation, is the cost of living, is the economy. And I stayed that way. Some 70 something percent of Britons rank both the issues as like the number one facing this nation right now, which that compares to the just after the 2008 financial crisis. The priority, of course, is the economy, is the cost of living and has been for the past year. When it comes, as as Henry says, really, is that if people don't feel like their views are being catered for, you're going to go for the extremes. 
Okay, now we don't necessarily have a radical right party to fall back on and talk about anymore. UKIP is dead. The Reform Party is led by Richard Tice, which isn't exactly doing particularly well. And so we have the, we have the future of the Conservative Party to talk about instead. Mm. Right. And in 2010, cast your minds back to the debates then. And when they tried to talk about immigration, it did feel a bit wet. It did feel a bit like there wasn't much meat on the table there. There wasn't exactly much being talked about when it came to immigration. And voters did feel a little bit disenfranchised by the main parties because they weren't catering to an issue that was, I think, second or third most important to voters. And when it's up the agenda, when it's there and it's not being catered for, voters will look elsewhere. For example, why did Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party do so badly in 2019? Multiple reasons, but one of which was, of course, it wasn't talking about Brexit in a clear-cut way when that was the Brexit election that, to be honest, Theresa May wanted in 2017. Mm -hmm. If you're not talking about the main issues, you're going to get nowhere. But, and immigration was a main issue in 2010. The main party suffered. Nigel Farage knew this, absolutely, that it was, it was an issue of anxiety among many Labour voters, which is why he felt able to talk about it with such relish, whereas Ed Miliband was so led by focus groups, he had to like couch everything in, oh, if buts, maybes, oh, we'll have controls on immigration, maybe. On a mug. All that <laughs> kind of this is where we were 15 years ago. And we've been, I don't want to say we're in a pause in terms of social, yeah, I don't want to call it culture wars, but in a, we're not in a pause in terms of social issue problems. But given the cost of living in the economy is so king right now and the NHS, we don't have an issue to a great many voters that people feel is being ignored. You do have the Leave voting base that backed Boris Johnson in 2019, who, feel, who felt disenfranchised by Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak at the outset, although Rishi Sunak's starting to win them back just a little bit, what we're talking about boats, what with all that sort of stuff. But people don't necessarily feel as disenfranchised today as they did in 2010 or even during the latter years of New Labour. It's really interesting because clearly, even though some of the issues that we've been talking about, the sort of culture war-ish things, aren't as salient as they might have been or as our politicians would suggest that they are, they do clearly feel motivated by it. Like Labour, for example, Keir Starmer's, like you say, you mentioned his kind of you turning on the trans rights stuff, even though that hasn't come up in people's top five issues that Ben's been taking us through. And other stances, an unwillingness to say that they oppose the Tory crackdown on nitrous oxide, for example, <laughs> only ever opposing the kind of migration legislation by saying it doesn't work rather than it's not moral. So clearly they feel like there are some votes to be won in sounding more conservative on those issues than perhaps their natural impulse would be. Yeah, I think sort of part of Labour's strategy to win the next election is to have to be a small target and to not scare the horses, basically, and to send voters who would be of a more socially conservative view in the other direction. But I think, on the other hand, it massive, these issues massive, massively motivate their activists. I think that's probably why you see more of it online than you would elsewhere. But yeah, it's, it still does matter to Labour as a party. But I don't think they've, I don't think the I don't think the Labour Party or the Lib Dems actually has, has found the language to respond to some of the anti-woke agenda that, or some of the campaigning that's quite aggressively coming from the right at the minute. They don't, they don't seem to know how to respond, I don't think. And it's quite helpful for the right. I know you were saying that they, <coughs> that they wouldn't get anywhere if they talk about it but don't do anything about it. But it's quite a handy device, isn't it? Because culture wars are free. Yeah, that's true. And don't get me wrong, the Conservative Party is always very grateful when Labour decides to let them fight on election on do you like the Union Jack, yes or no? <laughs> it doesn't produce good government because we're playing on easy mode, but it's nice. But I think the thing that the Cameroons are still stuck in the past on, and I think some, perhaps a lot of the cultural debate, is that it's not necessarily the case that you have 
growth and the cost of living. And then in a completely separate box that you deal with in your downtime, you have social issues. I think the thing that's starting to get picked up by some conservatives is that actually these two things can, and I think the success of the conservatives will depend on how skillfully they can do this, be meshed together. What's the point of all of this growth if you can't afford to have the family you want, you can't afford to get the home you want, you can't have children at the age you want, you're, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And you can actually, if you do a bit of reading and, and think a bit outside the normal Tory box, you can do all kinds of things. If you want to attack New Labour's policy of sending 50% of young people to university, you could appoint a free speech czar and start chuntering on about how it's turning them all into sort of zombies or whatever. Or you could point out that it's a massive externalised cost for businesses, which is now borne entirely by the state or young people paying 60% marginal tax rates, and that actually you're going to create a viable pathway straight into work and you're going to make businesses pay for it. So there's all kinds of things the Tories can do if they can set aside the zombie Thatcherism to weave the two together and say the economy and society, the economy we have and the social structures we have, they are the society we have and what society, the shape of the society we have matters. It's not just downstream of economic growth. I suppose the most obvious and egregious example of that is is opposing immigration in the sense of there's not enough public services, that you, you can't get the home that you want or your children can't get the home that they want because they're being taken up by X, Y and Z from X, Y and Z country. The, yeah, in the short term, that's the argument. It's about the use of public services and everything else. But I had a fascinating discussion with one sort of Osborne era spad who shall remain nameless. <laughs> and it was just the golf in perspectives because I, we're talking about family policy. And I was saying children are a public good. We need more of them. What if we re- we did reorder the tax system in that way so as to, enc- to encourage people to have more children? And this person just said, but we can just allow young people to immigrate. And it was just straight. It was That was default thinking, and that was default Tory thinking for a long time. If you need growth, you've got a ready-made pool of workers overseas, just import them. And in the new kind of conservative thinking, that it doesn't follow. That's not actually solving the problem, because the problem is we want British citizens to be able to have the families they want. In allowing businesses to import the labour they need doesn't solve that problem and it's a huge I don't even think most of the Conservative Party appreciate just how big is the gulf between the two value systems that are taking place at the moment. That's so interesting and Ben I really wanted to bring you in because there's often a sort of lazy assumption of what the red wall think about these things how much how much credence is there in this idea that voters in those red wall seats that are so crucial to both of the parties are more socially conservative than the general population? <laughs> Not much. It's minor. This is the thing. We again. I said this at the start. We have this misconception that votes for Labour, the Liberals, the Greens, any left-wing party, especially the SNP, one hundred percent the SNP, is as left-wing as the advocates, the politicians, the figures for the SNP Labour are. You get. You pick up a random Labour politician, get them speaking to every single Labour voter in the country, and they would be shocked at how diverse in in, in opinion they are, attitude they are. Even those that backed Labour in twenty nineteen, the core that came out for Corbyn and all that sound of stuff. It's Red Wall England and North Wales, to be fair, and a bit of South Wales. Are they as socially conservative? A little bit more. They are more motivated by immigration than the rest of the country, but not by much. It pretty, it's pretty much relative. What we saw over the past few weeks, I don't know if it's been got that much coverage, but Rishi Sunak's own numbers has seen a bit of an uptick. A little bit. It's all relative. He's gone from rock bottom to just being above <laughs> the rocks. It's still quite poor. And Starmer has net approval, but it, it's okay for him. Where it's jumped the most, according to JL Partners, is actually in the Red Wall seats, in, in these Tory marginals. His favourability has improved, and it came off the back of his announcement on stopping the votes on immigration. And you can conclude direct from there that where immigration has greater resonance is, of course, in these marginals. Now it's all relative. 
because the cost of living, I reiterate, is still king. The economy is still king. You, you put that on a chart, you put the economy plus inflation on a chart. And the last time it was as high as this, as high as the past few months, was the 2008 financial crisis. We are talking that the public opinion is really honed in on that issue and very little else. There are sections of the public who are motivated by immigration, but I don't want to say they're the usual suspects because they, they are, of course, the Brexit backers, the Boris backers, and were UKIP voters, former Labour voters, all that kind of stuff, disproportionately based in the Red Wall. But I do, they are pretty much usual suspects. They are only a section of the public that still prioritise the cost of living above all else and still, albeit only just in some, some seats, are preferring Labour to the Conservatives. It's all relative. Right, thanks, Ben. I think Henry should get a job as a Tory strategist. <laughs> uh, please, first, let me design them a reading list and make them read it. For, yeah, it would be a great Tory fun. tutor. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The right book club. <laughs> All right. Well, I never thought that would be what would come out of this podcast. But here we are launching the Right Wing Book Club at the New Statesman podcast studio. Thanks so much for coming in, Henry. It was brilliant to have you and a I, great discussion. I had great fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, my colleagues Rachel Cunliffe, Ben Walker and Rachel Wearmouth, and our guest Henry Hill. We'll be back on Thursday discussing the week in politics. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. We're produced by Adrian Bradley. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.